This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. rather uncharacteristically open today's program with a birthday salute to Karl Marx. The Cinco de Mayo marked the 200th anniversary of the birth of Mr. Marx, who still retains around the world many admirers. I think it's fair to say that uh, Radio Parallax is not necessarily numbered among them, Regardless how anyone feels about him, he did cut quite a figure on the world stage, and he's worth saying a few things about, which we will do later on in, in this segment. We do want to note a slight correction on today's program based on what we said on last week's program. We do want to offer up a slight correction to last week's statement that the editor of the National Enquirer, who is a personal friend of Donald Trump, is perhaps setting up his lawyer, Michael Cohn, well, by virtue of the cover story titled Trump Fixers, Secrets, and Lies. We assumed it would be just a hit piece on Mr. Cohn, and apparently Mr. Cohn's thinking perhaps along those same lines. When we actually sat down to read the National Enquirer, uh, we found that it was more balanced than we might have imagined. The magazine even alluded to the fact that uh, Cohn has been implicated in a... Uh, a visit to Prague, wherein he was attempting to put out some fires regarding the assertion that Paul Manafort and Carter Page, working for Trump, had dealt directly with people from the Kremlin. The magazine repeated Michael Cohn's claim that, I've never been to Prague in my life. So who knows, maybe the Inquirer is going to turn on Trump, not Cohn. Of course, uh, it's not too likely seeing that how on the next page in the issue, <laughs> the featured article was on how a voice stress analyzer uh, applied to statements made by Donald Trump indicated that he was telling the truth when he said there was no collusion with Russia. As far as we know, the voice stress analyzer uh, applied to recordings of people to try and determine whether they're telling the truth or not is um, not good science. Therefore, we hold out the possibility that Trump and his people may have engaged in some collusion that word's been thrown about quite a bit, but in its briefing, the Week magazine analyzed the issue uh, uh, several issues ago to note that collusion is not a legal term and it isn't a federal crime, except in maybe some antitrust cases. What special counsel Robert Mueller's team is investigating is whether there was a conspiracy, i.e. secret cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russia in violation of one or more federal laws including a law prohibiting political campaigns from receiving something of value from foreign nationals. Under the question, what justifies that suspicion, the editors of the magazine noted that U.S. intelligence agencies have already established that Russia sought to intervene in the 2016 presidential race to hurt Democrat Hillary Clinton and help Donald Trump. During the race and after the election, the Trump campaign had an unusual amount of contact with Russians. At least 72 emails, phone calls, and other interactions, including at least 19 face-to-face -face meetings. And it should be noted that 
so far, at least three Trump campaign officials have pled guilty to crimes related to Russia. Well, we should note, by the way, that the McClatchy newspapers have recently reported that uh, Robert Mueller does have evidence that Michael Cohn did, in fact, travel to the Czech Republic to meet with Russians entering via neighboring Germany so that his passport bore no record of the visit. If the McClatchy report is true, it would mean that Trump's longtime consigliere knowingly lied about a secret meeting with Russians. A major blow to the claim there was no collusion. Federal agents, of course, recently raided Cohen's offices and homes, carting away computers, tape recordings, and boxes of records from which we imagine some interesting things are going to emerge. You know, I hate to start out this program talking about Donald Trump, but my God. When we're at the point where Kim Jong-un of North Korea is having to correct the false statements of President Trump that, that, that the country's agreed to denuclearize and that he is responsible for their talks with South Korea... Well, that's just a sad commentary. I mean, on any, on any given day, if you pick up a newspaper, there's meant to be some headline related to Trump that just is, uh, well, entertaining might be one word. Mr. Mueller notes that terrifying might be another. When Rudy Giuliani attempted <laughs> to clarify the situation uh, regarding Trump's payoffs to Stormy Daniels via Micah Cohn, well, apparently um, he ruffled some feathers in the White House which is why I saw one headline from the Bay Area News Group noting that uh, Trump is mulling a Giuliani TV ban. A lot of comics out there seem to have been amused by the fact that Giuliani used the word funneled when it came to how the money got moved from Trump to Stormy Daniels via the LLC and law firms that were set up, etc. And you have to admit, the word funneled does sound a bit unsavory. I mean, you expect money to be funneled by the likes of, say, you know, the Gambino crime family. Giuliani, Giuliani also told the public that Trump might not comply with a subpoena served up by Robert Mueller's investigation. People inside the Beltway note that a subpoena fight would likely find its way to the Supreme Court, which has never firmly decided whether presidents can be compelled to speak under oath. Well, I certainly recall that the Republicans managed to engineer a way to put Bill Clinton under oath, put a question to him they were pretty sure he was going to lie about, and then impeach him. One thing I like about Trump's team is that all of them seem to be admitting that, you know, <laughs> the fact that, well, if, if Trump is put under oath, they seem to be expect him to lie. And why wouldn't he lie under oath? Every time he opens his mouth, he lies. Well... Maybe not literally every time he opens his mouth, but the Washington Post running count of documented lies coming out of the White House of Donald Trump uh, did pass the 3,000 mark a couple weeks ago. But uh, yeah, 16 months of a presidency, 3,000 plus lies and counting. Yikes. One recent batch of lies coming from Mr. Trump were surrounded his reasons for leaving the Iran nuclear deal. And I'm just not going to bog down in this, but um, suffice it to say that if you read what the Washington Post had to say about this, I think you'll be convinced that um, none of the reasons served up are valid. To cite just one, back on April 30th, the president said, in seven years, the deal will have expired and Iran is free to go ahead and create nuclear weapons. The reality is that the prohibition on Iran's building nuclear weapons does not sunset 
and other international agreements to which Iran has committed itself also prohibit the development of such weapons. In the ramp-up to Trump having to make this decision, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu revealed on a television program a huge cache of stolen Iranian documents claiming that it showed Tehran had covered up its past nuclear weapons program. Evidently, during a theatrical speech in Tel Aviv, Netanyahu pulled a curtain away from shelves stacked with copies of files which he said Israeli spies had seized from a government warehouse in Tehran. He said that the 55,000 pages of documents, which date back to the early 2000s, include incriminating evidence. Many former U.S. officials say those documents were all but irrelevant because international inspectors have found no evidence continued its bomb work after 2009. We don't know whether Bibi Netanyahu was inspired by Joe McCarthy back in the 50s holding up his scraps of paper, which he claimed contained lists of X number of known communists in the State Department. But uh, I do know that Israel's other perceived enemy in the area, Saudi Arabia, is now saying that if Iran goes ahead and builds a bomb, well, we're going to go ahead too. In fact, we should be allowed to proceed with our research anyway. Now, if there's any one group out there we, I think, don't want to have nuclear weapons, I think it would be the Saudis. Recalling the fact that 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers were Saudi, and the entire operation appeared to have been funded by and coordinated through various Saudi contacts. And one final bit of lunacy that bears comment from the president is the fact that uh, in March, he's called for the creation of a new branch of the military dedicated to space warfare. Trump said at the time, space is a war-fighting domain, just like land, air, and sea. We have an air force, we'll have the space force. All right, let's talk a bit about birthday boy Karl Marx. The Economist magazine, not noted for its left-wing uh, slant on things, reported that 200 years after his birth, Karl Marx remains surprisingly relevant. But just to prove they're not fans, the magazine opened with this. A good subtitle for a biography of Karl Marx would be A Study in Failure. Marx claimed that the point of philosophy was not to understand the world, but to improve it. Yet, his philosophy changed it largely for the worst. The 40% of humanity who lived under Marxist regimes for much of the 20th century endured famines, gulags, and party dictatorships. Marx thought that his new dialectical science would allow him to predict the future as well as understand the present. Yet, he failed to anticipate two of the biggest developments of the 20th century— the rise of fascism, and the welfare state, and wrongly believed communism would take root in the most advanced economies. Today's only successful self-styled Marxist regime is an enthusiastic practitioner of capitalism, or socialism with Chinese characteristics. They say that for all his oversights, Marx remains a monumental figure. At the 200th anniversary of his birth, which falls on May 5th, interest in him is as lively as ever. The president of the European Commission is visiting Trier, Marx's birthplace, where a statue of Marx donated by the Chinese government, which is interesting, will be unveiled. The British Library, where he did research for Das Kapital, is putting on a series of exhibitions and talks. 
and publishers are producing a cascade of books on his life and thought. From Das Kapital-sized doorstops, Sven Erik Liedman's A World to Win, the life, of the, the, life, the life and Works of Karl Marx, to Communist Manifesto Slim Pamphlets, a second edition of Peter Singer's Marx, a very short introduction. Why does the world remain fixated on the ideas of a man who helped to produce so much suffering, per The Economist? The obvious reason, they say, is the sheer power of those ideas. Marx may not have been the scientist that he thought he was, but he was a brilliant thinker. He developed a theory of society driven forward by economic forces, not just by the means of production, but by the relationship between owners and workers, and destined to pass through certain developmental stages. He was also a brilliant writer. Who can forget his observation that history repeats itself? The first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. His ideas were as much religious as scientific. You might even call them religion repackaged for a secular age. One of the most thought-provoking books that uh, we have cited over the years on this program is Michael Hart's The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. When Hart originally produced this book, his first edition of it, he ranked Marx as number 11. That was in the late 1970s. By 1992, when the second edition came out, Marx had dropped to 27th place. Because we like Mr. Hart's writing, I think we're going to quote a bit from his chapter about number 27. Marx's writings form the theoretical basis of communism, as well as many modern forms of socialism. At the time Marx died, no country had yet put his ideas into practice. In the century since then, however, communist governments were established in many places, including Russia and China, and in dozens of other countries, movements based on his teachings have arisen and have attempted to gain power. The activities of those Marxist parties, activities which have included propaganda, assassinations, terrorism, and rebellions in order to achieve power, plus wars, brutal repression, and bloody purges after reaching power, kept the world in turmoil for decades and have caused roughly 100 million deaths. No philosopher in history has had so great an impact on the world in the century after he wrote. You may believe, as I do, said Michael Hart, that Marxism has been a disaster both economically and politically. But surely it has not been an insignificant movement. Indeed, the only reason Marx has not been ranked even higher in this book is that he must share credit, or rather blame, for what has occurred with many other persons, including such notable figures as Lenin, Stalin, and Mao Zedong. In view of the foregoing, it is clear that Marx deserves a high place on this list. The question is, how high should he be ranked? Even if one acknowledges the enormous influence that communism has had, one may still question the importance of Marx himself within the communist movement. The actual content of the Soviet government was never rigidly controlled by the works of Marx. He wrote about concepts such as Hegelian dialectic and the surplus value of labor, and such abstractions seem to have little effect on the day-to-day -day policies of the Russian or Chinese governments. Whether his economic theories are right or wrong, however, has little to do with Marx's influence. A philosopher's importance lies not in the correctness of his views, but whether his ideas move people to action. Judged on that basis, Marx was unquestionably of enormous importance. Said Michael Hart, Marxist movements have generally stressed four main ideas. One, a few rich persons live in great wealth, while most workers live in comparative poverty. Two, 
The way to rectify this injustice is to set up a socialist system. That is, a system where the means of production are owned by the government rather than by private individuals. Three, in most cases, the only practical way to establish this system is by a violent revolution. And four, to preserve this socialist system, the dictatorship of the Communist Party must be maintained for a considerable time. Said Michael Hart, each of the first three ideas had been clearly stated long before Marx. The fourth statement is derived in part from Marx's idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat. However, the duration of the Soviet dictatorship appears to have been more the result of the practices of Lenin and Stalin than the writings of Marx. It has therefore been claimed by some that Marx's influence on communism has been more nominal than real, and that the respect paid to his writings is mere window dressing, an attempt to claim scientific justification for ideas and policies that would have been adopted anyway. Hart goes on to say some of Marx's ideas, for example, his interesting notion of the economic interpretation of history, are apt to remain influential even if communism itself dies out. Plainly, though, a major factor in deciding how high Marx should be ranked will be one's estimate of the importance of communism in the long-term history of the world. A century after Marx's death, there were well over a billion persons who were at least nominally his followers. This was a greater number of adherents than any other ideology has ever had, not just in absolute numbers, but also as fractions of the total world population. That fact led many communists to hope and anti-communists to fear that the future might well see the eventual worldwide triumph of Marxism. Said Hart, in the first edition of this book, I wrote, though one cannot be sure just how far communism will go and just how long it will last, it should be apparent by now that the ideology is solidly entrenched and will be a major influence in the world for at least a few centuries more to come. Hart says, it now appears that that estimate was unduly pessimistic. With the renunciation of communism by Russia and by the other republics of the former Soviet Union and by most of the countries that had been a client states of the Soviet Union, the role of Marxism in the world has declined precipitously over the past few years. And one certainly gets the impression that the decline is irreversible. Well, judging by what's happened in China since then, I don't know that Michael Hart's correct. Although one could certainly argue that although China is run by the Communist Party, it cannot very well said to be uh, closely following the, the precepts of socialism and communism or Marxism. Anyway, we welcome your input on Karl Marx, and we invite you to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I'd be especially keen to hear from a certain friend down in Sydney, Australia, who frequently speaks glowingly about Marx and Marxism while maintaining his profession as an investment banker. And uh, here's one little blurb I meant to put on last week's program, but didn't get around to it. From uh, Andy Borowitz in The New Yorker, we have this headline, Trump considering pulling out of U.S. Constitution. Dateline Washington, the Borowitz report, calling it maybe the worst deal ever. Donald J. Trump said on Wednesday he's considering pulling the U.S. out of the United States Constitution saying, I've seen a lot of bad deals in my life, but this Constitution is a total mess. We need to tear it up and start over. Trump was scathing in his remarks about the 229-year-old document, singling out for special scorn its insistence on three branches of government, saying this branches thing may be the worst part of the deal. 
The first thing we do when we pull out of the Constitution is to get rid of those two other branches. He also called the First Amendment something that really has to go. No one in his right mind would put something like that in the Constitution, he said. Russia doesn't have it. North Korea doesn't have it. All the best countries don't have it. He stopped short of accusing his predecessor, Barack Obama, of writing the U.S. US Constitution, but said he's working very hard behind the scenes trying to save it because he knows the Constitution is very, very bad for me. Vowing to replace the Constitution with a new, much, much better Constitution, Trump acknowledged that there may be some elements of the original document worth saving. We're going to keep the Second Amendment, he said, and definitely the Fifth. A couple of weeks back, uh, yours truly went to go see our pal, Greg Pallast. I say our pal because we've had him on, I don't know, three or four times. And it's always been an adventure. But the truth is, I don't think we've had him on since about 08. We hope Greg Pallast's name is familiar to you, dear listener, even though we have not brought him before you in a while. Esquire magazine said, Greg Pallast is one of those inconveniently stubborn journalists much like Glenn Greenwald and the late Gary Webb, who gets his teeth into a story and shakes it bloody right there in the middle of the parlor, dreadfully inconveniencing the pampered swells of the elite political press and revolting the serious thinkers who get to go on PBS and moan about the genuine crisis of American political civility. Said the Chicago Tribune, Palace is exactly what a journalist is supposed to be, a truth hound, doggedly independent, undaunted by power, his stories bite. They're so relevant, they threaten to alter history. Now, I wouldn't exactly call Greg Pallas a counter-narrative to the story of Russian collusion. But for the past five national election cycles, Greg has been on it when it comes to issues of, well, election theft. He made a name for himself back in the year 2000 when, as the national press was wandering around with Dazed look on its face, trying to explain what had happened down in Florida and elsewhere in Bush versus Gore. Greg Palace got leaked some information about what was going on with altering the voter rolls through the offices of Jeb Bush and Catherine Harris, and quickly figured out how it was that Team Bush won in Florida. To make that long story short, we would say that the the election of George W. Bush by a 537-vote plurality in Florida only came about because certain Republican officials managed to make somewhere between 100 and 200,000 votes disappear. Anyway, I have the latest version of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy by Greg Pallast. It's basically a series of essays. It's a little bit uh, disjointed of a book, but uh, there's a lot of content in it worth perusing. So let's grab some quotes out of it, shall we? Chapter one opens up as follows. I can sum up my two decades of investigation in a single sentence. The nasty little secret of American democracy is that we don't count all the votes. Millions of ballots are simply thrown in the garbage, and millions of voters are simply thrown off the voter rolls blocked from voting. How many? Believe it or not, the U.S. government has an agency, the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, that keeps an official score of the votes we don't count. From the commission's data, we can calculate that at least 2,706,000 votes that were cast in the presidential race were never counted, thrown away. Let me repeat, nearly 3 million votes 
were flushed away. That's an ugly fact, but it gets uglier. The government's data also tells us that at least 3,195,000 American voters were simply blocked from casting any ballot at all. That is, they are wiped off the voter rolls or simply denied a ballot. Add it up, and the total grows to no fewer than 5,902,000 legitimate votes and voters tossed out of the count. Let's call it the missing 6 million. Does it matter? Well, indeed it does. In 2000, George W. Bush was declared president by a victory margin of just 537 votes out of over 100 million votes cast. Skipping ahead, how can you embezzle 6 million votes? There's 10 ways, one more devious than the next, and we'll get to each of them in this book. I discovered the first trick called purging in November 2000 when the winner of the presidential race between Gore and Bush was still undecided. The presidency came down to the vote in one state, Florida. As the long count began, a little birdie dropped two computer disks at my desk. It was a list of voters, 91,000 of them that had been removed from Florida's voter rolls just before the election. Why? Why these voters been purged from the voter rolls, blocked from voting? The official in charge, Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris, said these 91,000 were felons. That is, they were convicted criminals. In Florida, ex-cons can't vote. But no one in the press had seen this list of convicted criminals until the birdie, my source, dropped it off on my desk. Then my team started going through the list name by name, checking the records. Not a single one was a criminal. Not one was an illegal voter. But they all lost their right to vote. However, said Pallas, most of them were guilty of this crime, the crime of voting while black. The vast majority of those losing their vote were African-American voters. Approximately 88% of black voters are Democrats. Skipping ahead, in 2004, they did it again. If you're listening to Radio Parallax back then, you will note that we were on this, this story with Greg Pallas and others, said Greg Said Greg in the book, this time Bush's brain, Rove, had a new trick called caging. George W. Bush was reelected and once again, not by the voters, but by preventing voters from having their ballots counted. And in 2008 and in 2012, there were new tricks called spoiling, blocking, and tossing. In all, Republican voting officials used nine ways to quietly disappear six million voters and their ballots. Yes. Barack Obama won. That's because he overwhelmed the steal, winning by more than 9 million votes in 2008 and in 2012. But it was close in 2012. Obama barely beat the wholesale theft of votes in the key states of Ohio and Florida. Barely. Now, skipping to Chapter 2, where, where Greg talks about the 2016 election, we have this. Republicans clearly needed a new trick for 2016. It had to be bigger, nastier, far more devious, and far more devastating than any scheme so far. And now, after two years of investigating it, my team and a half dozen detectives, we have found it. Trick number 10. Its name is Deceptively Innocent. Interstate Crosscheck. Greg figures it eliminated more than a million votes in the November 2016 election. He notes there are more than 100 million American voters. Federal records show that in the last federal election, not a single person voted two times. Not one. In state records, I found four. Four people out of 100 million. Donald Trump and the Republicans are claiming that this is a big problem, people voting twice. 
Exactly how do these criminal voters cast a second fraudulent vote? How do people vote many, many times? According to GOP officials, there are voters who cast ballots in two states in the same election. In his talk in Oakland, Greg described how he was watching Fox News one night as Dick Morris came on to describe how the Republican elections director in North Carolina had a list of 35,000 people who had voted in that state and in another state. 35,000 criminal double voters in just one state, North Carolina, and a million across the nation. Said Greg, if correct, then this is the biggest criminal conspiracy of all time. A million people secretly enlisted in a scheme, first to get a black man elected president, and then in 2016, a million voters conspired to elect Hillary Clinton. Greg points out that the Republicans are using a special computer program, which is called Interstate Cross-Check. It matches the name of every voter in several states. He notes that, for example, a man named James Brown voted once in North Carolina and again in Arizona. In fact, the North Carolinians claim they found 11,000 Americans voted in both North Carolina and Arizona, which is somewhat extraordinary given that Arizona is 2,000 miles distant from Carolina. But it, of course, could be done. Greg notes that he discovered that 29 of America's 50 states have joined the interstate cross-check program, He notes it's no accident that almost every one of these 29 states are controlled by Republican election officials. But given the alarming stats coming out of North Carolina, Greg went to Raleigh, the capital, and met with Josh Lawson, the spokesman for the Republican officials. How many had the state arrested? He asked. Lawson replied, we haven't located them. None, said Greg. There are 31,000 criminals and you can't find one? He added, they're difficult to find. (laughs) Palace. Difficult to find? Wait a minute. How hard is it to find someone voting twice if you have their name? Plus, the state has the suspect's addresses, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, and even their email addresses. And they can't find a single one? Anyway, this entire system is based on matching a person's first name and last name. Middle names were excluded, and as were suffixes. Palace prints examples in his book of of this cross-check computer program printout showing that, for example, the James S. Brown of Oak Lockney, Georgia, is considered to be the same person that voted in Virginia under the name James Howe Brown, Jr. And as a result, both Virginia and Georgia denied the right to vote to both James Browns. Yeah, well, we're pretty sure it wasn't that James Brown, but... Greg Palace took a look and discovered that there are, in fact, 27,456 people in the U.S. who are named James Brown. (laughs) Said Greg, according to Crosscheck, they must be a criminally-minded family, because according to Crosscheck, thousands of these people named James Brown are voting twice. And those double-voting James Brown criminals lose their right to vote. And by the way, he said, most won't receive any notice. They've lost their vote until they show up and try to cast a ballot. When Palace gave the cross-check list to a group of statisticians and database specialists under the direction of Mark Swedland, who is apparently a guy that advises Amazon and American Express, Swedland reported the obvious. Using nothing more than a first and last name to catch criminals was laughable. His clients, like Amazon, use as many as 35 matching points before they decide two names belong to the same person. Amazon does not send one James Brown the guitar ordered by another James Brown. Anyway, 
we highly recommend the book, and we highly recommend The Investigator, and uh, we're going to see what we can do to bring Greg on yet again to, to talk about this. Clearly, whatever Russia may have done in the 2016 election is far from the whole story. It certainly seems like there's a whole lot of criminal activity going on that is both foreign and domestic. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We're going to take a break and come back and talk about some other stuff. <laughs> 